0: From Paul's first letter. Rid yourself, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see that I am lying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, He went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. He came to it. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
2: Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. You are our rock and redeemer, and we need your help. So would you be with us and bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I know we say things like this a lot here at City Church, but um, this text is a weird one. It's, uh, it, it is, and I, we say that especially as we read the gospel stories of Jesus' life, um, we come across these episodes that are just really weird, uh, and this is another one of those. This, um, I mean, what is with the fig tree, right? As you're reading through this story, and then toward the end, when Jesus starts talking about faith and prayer that can move mountains, and when he says, like, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Is Jesus saying that if God, that if he'll give us whatever we want, if we just ask in faith rather than with doubt in our hearts, is that what Jesus is saying? Uh, Is Jesus saying that if God answers our prayers with a no, or simply with like silence on the other end, that that's somehow the result of our not coming to him with enough faith? Certainly some people have taken Jesus's words here to mean just that, Maybe some of you have received pastoral counsel from some people who take Jesus' words to mean just that. It's a common interpretation among people uh, who would proclaim what's commonly called like a prosperity gospel, right? Health and wealth and God wanting good things for you right now if you would just have enough faith to receive them and you can see how if the, if the all that we had in the bible were verses 22 to 24 of this passage like that might make sense if that's all we had to develop our theology of prayer from maybe that sort of approach would make some sense but of course we don't have just that god has given us a lot more than that including not the least the cross of christ himself the sufferings of god's beloved jesus's own experience of poverty and humiliation, Jesus' own experience of getting a no answer from a desperate prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the faithful one, right, hearing a no on the other end. And then not to mention Jesus' own invitation for his followers to take up our cross and follow him, right, that the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation into self-sacrificial love toward God and neighbor in imitation of Jesus himself, the crucified Savior, So we know the whole prosperity thing can't be what this has to do with, right? But we can rule that out. But then what is he talking about? If it's not that, then what is Jesus saying? It's a confusing passage. It's also a really important one. And as we get into it and begin to understand what the gospel writer Mark is showing us in this text about Jesus and his mission in the world, I think we'll see that this passage actually has a lot to tell us about what sort of spiritual renewal might be needed for us today in the church. When you think about renewal, the renewal that's needed in the Christian church today, what comes to your mind? What are the things that you think of? Maybe your dissatisfaction with where you see the church maybe capitulating to political agendas on the right and the left. Or when the, when the church's witness becomes indistinguishable from the other voices and visions that the world has to offer around human flourishing. Or maybe it's dissatisfaction with the church's failure to reach younger generations, right? Um, to be a community where you feel like they can belong. And where they can find wisdom and help that they need in order to grow up in becoming human beings of maturity. They learn to discover more and more what it means to live in a full and beautiful way. Or maybe when we think about church renewal or what would be needed, we think of our dissatisfaction with the lack of transformation we experience in our own lives or that we see across the community of the church where when we, it's, our lives just don't seem to be as changed as they ought to be by our participation in church stuff or in the community of the church. Or maybe when you think of renewal, you think of your own dissatisfaction with the church's internal division. All the different denominations and disagreements and obsessions over doctrines or particular issues or whatever. There's all kinds of things we might think of, and and there's plenty of that stuff is very real and good, and we ought to be thinking of those things. We should be dissatisfied with those things. Those are areas that really do uh, need renewal, that show our need for renewal. And as we read this particular story about Jesus and this this unique and important moment in his own life and ministry, I, I think also that this story will give us a lens, if you will. Or at least the implications of this story will give us a lens through which we might look upon ourselves, upon the church, and begin to discern how we might discern our need for spiritual renewal in the church today. When is renewal needed? I think one thing we'll see is when those who are spiritually hungry find in the church something other than the free offer of the nourishment that they seek for their souls. And secondly, I think we'll see renewal is needed when those who are physically hungry find the church to be well-fed people who don't want to share. I think the implications of this story will reveal both of those as almost like canaries in the cave, if you will. You know, you go down in in the cave and you're mining and the canary dies before you do to show that the oxygen is gone. I think these can become those kinds of things for us that function as indicators that we're in need of renewal. When those who are spiritually hungry and those who are physically hungry do not find the food they seek among us for any number of reasons. In this story, we see Jesus, hungry, coming to a symbolic tree that has no food for him, and he pronounces judgment on it. That's weird. We've already acknowledged that. We'll look at more carefully what that is about in just a minute. And then we also see the same Jesus, angry, disrupting the workings of the Jerusalem temple because their economic practices attach to their religious worship. We're oppressing the poor and serving the interests of the empowered ruling class. And hopefully those insights will become more clear as we dive in and study the text, which really begins to unfold in three episodes, if you will. This episode around the fig tree, an episode around the temple, and then this episode around the lessons from the fig tree where Jesus begins to cast a vision for this community of faith and what we're to be about. So if you look at the text and just start, let's just go there. Let's, let's, let's travel with Jesus here. Verse 11 begins at the tail end of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So we fast-forwarded a little bit from last week where we were. We've skipped ahead. Uh, if you remember, the story in, in Mark chapter 11 of Jesus' triumphal entry, it's the one that we celebrate every year at Palm Sunday of Jesus' riding into Jerusalem uh, on the donkey, and the, the streets are lined with the crowds who are heralding him as king. There's a lot of celebration. Uh, they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. There's a lot of fanfare. There's a lot of enthusiastic, uh, a lot of enthusiastic followers who are welcoming this Messiah whom they expect will liberate. The temple and the temple state of Israel from Roman occupation. And in verse 11, we see kind of what happens when Jesus rides into town. He enters the city. He goes to the temple just like you'd expect Messiah to do. This is how it was going to go when the Messiah, the expected Messiah would come. And then he rides into town. And when he gets to the temple, there he is in his great appearing. He doesn't do anything. And this is where he really starts to go off script as far as everyone's political expectations for him would have gone anyway. He doesn't ride the wave of momentum. He doesn't ride the zeal of the crowds. He just goes into the temple, and he has a look around. What does he see? We'll talk about that in just a minute, but think about that. What does he see when he goes to have a look around? He goes into the the temple, he observes what's happening there, and then because it's getting late, he leaves. He leaves. Not with the crowds, but with his 12 disciples. And he goes back out to Bethany about a mile and a half down the road. And that surprising 180 that Jesus does here, it prepares us for what he's about to do next. That when Jesus does actually intervene in the temple on the following day, what he's going to do is not the expected uh, liberation and restoring of temple practices, but it's actually going to be a disrupting. A shutting down of the temple practices. He's going to become a bigger obstacle to the temple than what they're previously experiencing. And nobody is expecting that at all. And that's going to be very important for us understanding what Jesus' mission is all about. Because what we'll soon see is that he hasn't just come to cleanse the temple. He's come to overthrow it and establish an entirely new way of participating in life in connection with God and life among God's people. So we'll talk about that, but first things first. Before we get to the temple, we've got to get to this fig tree because that happens on the way, right? Jesus and his disciples, they're coming back the next day from Bethany. They're coming back up the road to Jerusalem, and they come by this fig, fig tree. And Jesus is hungry, uh, and he doesn't find in the tree any fruit. It has leaves, but no fruit. And Jesus curses it and says, may no one ever eat fruit of you again. So is this hangry Jesus throwing a magical tantrum of the kind I would often like to throw when people cut me off in traffic and I want to zap them with, you know, mind rays that make their car like hover in space or something? No, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus throwing a a magical hangry tantrum. That's not at all what he's doing. The fig tree is symbolic of the temple. This is another example of what we've seen before in the Mark Sandwich. Remember the Mark Sandwich? For those who've been tracking with us through the series for some time, Mark has a way of doing this almost like picture-in-picture thing when when he tells his story in the gospel. He takes a story, and then right in the middle of the story, he inserts another story, which is a way of saying, you're supposed to read these two together. They go together. Like when I'm watching sports and I want to put my game up here and the other game with the next leading team in the division up here because our destinies are intertwined and how these two stories play out is related, right? It's the same kind of thing. These stories go together. The fig tree and the temple go together. That's one clue that the fig tree doesn't stand on its own, but there's another massive clue, which is just that the Bible is really full of symbolically rich trees. They're all over the place. Some commentators note it's hard to find a tree that's not symbolically rich, actually. In the Bible, that's being singled out and described uh, by itself, anyway. If you just think of the Garden of Eden or the burning bush, you just go on through the scriptures, and they're just, it's just you know, instance after instance after instance of these theologically rich, symbolically loaded trees, especially fig trees. And they show up in the prophets a lot in the Old Testament. And often when they show up, when fig trees show up, there are signs of either God's blessing or God's judgment on the people of Israel. Where a tree that is blossoming and bringing forth fruit is a picture of God giving life and blessing and bounty to his people. And a tree that is withered and not producing fruit is God withholding blessing. It's a picture of God's judgment, his displeasure. And so this fig tree here, is functioning in the Gospel of Mark, similarly to the way other trees in the Bible function throughout the prophets. It's a picture of what God is doing and what God is saying. And here, as Jesus pronounces this judgment, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. This is a picture of the tearing down and the building up that God is doing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, particularly as it relates to how people connect their own lives to God and the way that God will unleash his blessing in the world. He's overthrowing an old system that has proven fruitless. And in Jesus, he's establishing a new one in which he will unleash his blessing to all the nations of the earth, which is what the temple was supposed to be doing from day one. So let's look at what Jesus does in the temple in verses 15 to 19. What does he see, do you think, when he goes in to have a look around and then he goes back out? What does he see as he does his reconnaissance mission and is and his, his going in there and observing the temple? Well, some have thought that what he sees is just simply the act of commerce happening, like that the buying and selling of things in the temple is somehow inappropriate. But that, that, can't, that doesn't make any sense because that was really commonplace and the temple was just as much an economic center of life in Israel as it was a religious one. Like the whole temple had this whole, it was like a little city in and of itself, kind of, where the buying and selling of things, or like the making of curtains and doorways and gates, there was a whole little, whole little economy around the temple itself, and it didn't have to be unjust. But in Jesus' day, there was actually a whole tradition in the rabbis talking about what just economic practices looked like in the buying and selling of the things, especially the animals that had to be bought to participate in the sacrificial system of Israel. This is a system where it's, it's a, the debt and restoration, the debt and redemption system, where if you owed a debt or if you'd committed a sin or if you were ceremonially unclean for any reason, there was a way to engage your purification, your restoration to God in the community. And it involved buying animals and then offering them as sacrifices in the temple. And if you were poor, the animal that you would often be buying would be a dove more wealthy people would have other larger animals to buy, but the dove was a particular provision for the poor. The problem is that price gouging happened just in those days just as it does in our own. And not only that, but there, the currency with which you could buy temple animals had to be temple currency, not Roman currency, so you had to go to a, a temple bank, if you will, to exchange your Roman money for temple money. And the bank had its own opportunity to gouge you, and the buyers and the, the sellers had their own opportunity to gouge you. And there's this whole debate happening in the rabbis of Jesus' day that talking about what is fair pricing for these things. When Jesus goes into the temple, he sees that the buying and selling are actually placing burdens on the poor. That the money changing, that the selling of doves, which would have been particularly uh, commonly used for women, for lepers, and for the poor. that That these practices are placing a burden on people. And not a burden on everyone uniformly, but a burden on the poor in an effort to prop up the lifestyle and the privileges of those in power. The ruling class that rules the temple. And Jesus describes this situation as this place having become a den of thieves. And what Jesus is going to do is not enter into the old debate of the rabbis, which is make the prices fair. Jesus is gonna blow up the debate altogether by saying no, let's throw out the system. He's actually gonna, in his in, in his actions, he's actually going to demonstrate a blockage of the whole system, not a reform of its prices but an overthrow of the entire economy of the temple as a way of showing that what God is doing is tearing down an old and building up a new, and that the economy of God's people moving forward will not look like that, but it will be the economy of grace. It will be that one that the prophet Isaiah looks at, without money, come to the Lord and buy this free life with God and with one another. And Jesus calls for this end of the whole system. He overturns the tables of both the money changers and the dove salesmen, right? An indication that he's taking on the whole thing. And he indicts them with this pronouncement from Jeremiah chapter 7, that this place has become not a house of prayer, but a den of thieves. It's one of the harshest attacks in the Old Testament against the temple state of Israel. And it comes from a time in the, in the history of God's people when God was basically issuing a warning against people who were allowing unjust practices to persist in their own society. And he was saying, you want the favor of God to remain with you while you deal unjustly with others. But if you keep living this way, if you keep conducting your life this way, God's going to let that temple be destroyed just the way the first one was destroyed back in Shiloh a long, long time ago. That shrine in days of old. It's this this moment from Israel's history where they're looking forward to this moment or looking ahead at this moment of coming judgment and restoration. And Jesus brings up that verse from that passage to basically let the temple rulers hear it in his presence that what he's saying is they are like that. That what Jesus observes in the temple is like what Jeremiah is speaking to in his day, which is not good. And that like the fig tree The temple, the temple state, the whole religious order is withered to the root, and it's gonna be plucked up. And Jesus makes sure to say that in earshot of the leaders. And they hear him and they're scared of him, and they decide this guy's gotta die. They're immediately threatened by Jesus' message because they've their power is what's on the line in this overthrow. But of course, Jesus comes not with an army. He comes not in a violent overthrow. He simply comes as this prophet Messiah who speaks, who does this act, and then he leaves. And as he's going back out, they pass back by the fig tree, and the disciples recognize that this is the same tree that Jesus has earlier spoken to, and they say, whoa, it's dead. Like, that worked. That worked. When you said that thing to the tree, that, that worked. And Jesus then begins to explain what he's doing. And he begins to cast this vision for what the community of faith that he is establishing is going to look like. He's not just come to tear down, he's come to build up. But the thing he's come to establish is not the same kind of institutional establishment that they've seen. What he's come to do is now set up a community of faith whose faith will be in the God who's not in the temple. The faith of the people whose God is not tied to a particular brick-and-mortar location, but will dwell with his people differently moving forward. And he talks about these prayers and this, what you see here uh, in these last verses of our passage where he starts talking about faith and prayer and forgiveness and this mountain-moving stuff which we've already said is strange. What is he talking about? When he talks about this new community being a community of faith and prayer and forgiveness. Well, he's not talking about a prayer of faith that can move mountains in any general sense. This isn't like the, oh, the places you'll go book that I sometimes read with my kids. Like, kid, you'll move mountains. 98 and three quarters percent guaranteed. Dr. Seuss He's not talking about mountains. He's talking about this mountain, right? If you look at your text, this mountain, the Temple Mount. He's talking about the mountain that is the religious and political and economic center of the Jewish people. And not only that, but is the very centerpiece of everyone's imagination for who God is, where God is, and what God will do. And Jesus says, if you, if you, the community of jesus followers say to this mountain mount zion the temple mount be taken up and thrown into the sea and you actually believe it you believe god would do such a thing it will be done for you it's the same language mark uses to portray what happens to that legion of demons back in mark chapter 5 remember the demons remember the legion When they get on the boat and they go across, and there's that guy that's afflicted by all these unclean spirits. And we read that story. It was way back in October when we read this story. I don't expect you to remember. But it's it's this really fascinating story where you see Jesus engage this guy who who says, you know, he's he's filled with unclean spirits. We are legion. And there's this whole scene, and, and he drives them out into the herd of pigs, and they're thrown into the sea. And when we read it before, we looked at just how militaristic and anti roman that passage is that the legion is a portrayal of the roman legions the military and all the words are like military words and it's this really like dangerously anti-roman thing that jesus is saying that depicts this program that god is doing where jesus has said i've come to bind the strong man and plunder his house that the house is rome and he's come to drive out the occupation from god's place in his own way, right? Well, here, that same language is used for the temple. It's not so subtly suggestive. No one would expect a Jewish Messiah to say anything like this, that the program of binding the strong man and plundering his house, that this house on top of the temple mount, the house of the Lord, would be part of that plan. But Jesus is, if you will, exercising the temple in this moment of disrupting its work. It's not the Roman army this time being hurled into the sea. It's the temple mount itself. And Jesus is basically saying to his followers that God has anointed him to transform what it means to ascend God's holy hill into God's place, to be with him, to have life connected to his life. That no longer is God going to dwell in the physical temple on top of a physical hill, but now he's going to establish his dwelling among his people in a new way. And they're going to participate in his redemption in a new way. Not in an oppressive, costly system of buying and selling animals that oppress some people and prop up others. But in this way of gratuitous forgiveness. That as they give and receive forgiveness with one another, they will be doing so from God also. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is essentially what Jesus is saying in this last line of our text. Forgiveness, freely given and freely received, is the economy of what God is doing in Jesus. Which brings us to my opening point. I think this text gives us a lens through which we might actually think about the spiritual renewal needed among us today. Our situation is different from the situation of the temple that Jesus wades into. We don't live under a conditional promise. We live under the unconditional promise that what God has created in Christ and has blessed in the church will endure until his return. We don't, we don't have to worry that God is going to look upon us, say, you have no fruit, therefore I'm overturning the whole thing and starting over. God has promised to do otherwise. Yet at the same time, this particular overthrow of the old and creating of the new that we see in Jesus gives us a window into the very heart of God, into the very heart of the mission of God in the world and what our vocation as Jesus followers is in the world. And the lens through which we are to look, I think that Jesus gives us that we see through Mark in this passage, is that when the hungry people come to be fed, whether we're thinking spiritually hungry or physically hungry, if they're not finding it here, then we may not be living into our calling the way we think we are, that we may need to be renewed in ways that we have not realized. So let's just think about this for a minute. This is something I've been thinking about probably more over the last year than I've been thinking about. (laughs) I've been thinking about this topic over the last year more than almost anything else. What does it look like for the church to be the church now? In a world where people aren't looking for the church. What does it look like for us to take our calling and our identity seriously? In such a way that we might be a tree of life and not a tree withered to its root. Being planted where we are and blooming where we're planted. What does it look like for the church to be the church today? I've been thinking about that a lot. I've been reading about that a lot and praying about that a lot. What are some reasons why the spiritually hungry might not find in the church the nourishment they seek? Sometimes it could be because there's not much there there, if you will, right? Sometimes it might be that we're doing more the things of Christianity than we are doing life with God. And so when you come and you're spiritually hungry, you come and there's just a lot lot more religion than there is life with God. That's totally possible. That's well, it's one of the ways that people might come and not find what they're looking for is, is if we are actually empty and not full ourselves. If we are withered at the root. If we're more into doing churchy things than we are connecting with God in our lives. Or maybe another reason that people might come and not find among us in the church what they're looking for, maybe it's because they don't feel welcome and they can't find a place where they can belong. Maybe we're making the practice of redemption more costly than we realize. Are we putting the burden of belonging on the seeker who comes? Or are we owning it ourselves as the community of Christ's welcome? How do we do this? Are we we committed to being a people who will embrace our neighbors? Another reason might be a lot more simple at the surface and it's just simply, why might people not find among us that which they're, for which they're looking? Maybe we're just not planted in the midst of where the people are. Maybe we don't go where the seekers are. Maybe we're so caught up in doing our church stuff together with ourselves that we don't actually bloom near anyone who's not already here in any meaningful way right like we just kind of do our own thing over and over and over again so it could just be as simple as that it's like if the tree is planted over there instead of over here the hungry who are here won't eat And that seems simple on the surface, except that it's a lot more than just logistical, isn't it? The spiritual complexity of that problem becomes a lot more apparent when we begin to think about the thing that we do together as we gather is actually to celebrate the life and the salvation of a Savior and a God who comes near. A God who actually engages the lost and the weary and the wanderer. The God who seeks the lost sheep. The one who goes. The one who's become incarnate in our midst. How do you do a thing like that in a disincarnated way? That doesn't make any sense. The spiritual complexity of our own withdrawing and our own cloistering and our own being over here becomes a lot more apparent as we think about what we do juxtaposed against the life of the Savior we follow and the God whom we worship a God who crosses barriers and tears down walls and gets dirty and hugs sinners and isn't freaked out by the horrific brokenness of your real life or my real life or your neighbor's real life. But the God who in Christ embraces us right where we are, right as we are, and blesses us and says, go and do likewise. What would it look like if we took seriously Jesus' calling for his church to be this community that's like a fruitful tree of life for the world. This community of faith and prayer and forgiveness that he describes in this passage as he's casting a vision for his people, for his followers to have their imagination renewed, that the way that they live with God isn't cloistered in the temple, but is dispersed. But it's not the brick-and-mortar temple where God's going to make his home in this next age, but it's the temple made with the living stones of those God actually appoints as his people and says, I will make my home with you, like we just read about in that passage from Peter. That we are God's home. When Jesus goes into the temple, he says, this place has become a den of thieves, what it was supposed to be as a house of prayer for all nations. How do we become, once again, renewed in our calling to be a house of prayer for all nations? To be a tree of life for the world? It begins when we begin to let our imagination be reshaped by Jesus' invitation to ascend God's holy hill that's not some pile of rock and dirt somewhere in the earth but that the way heaven and earth intersect now is right here in our midst. His spirit is here. He's made his home with us and he's made us to be the place of his presence. Do you know him? Are you leaning into him? Are we taking up the practices that call to mind and call to our own experience? The nearness, the power, the transformation, the love of God so that we might be changed, that we might be rooted, that we might bloom. And become a different kind of people for a world hungering for a different kind of church. I think that's, in, that's Jesus' invitation to us this morning, I believe. And I'm thankful for Mark's window into this episode of Jesus' life that shows us the remarkable Savior we follow, the remarkable calling that is ours, and the remarkable hope for the world that God extends to us in Christ and invites us to extend. the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you love us in Jesus. We thank you that you give us your spirit who makes all things new. And we thank you that you have planted in the earth this new life of the risen Savior. Would you awaken us again today? Enliven us by your spirit and call us out into a courageous following of Jesus, into your world. Would you help us to abide in you, to seek you, to never become complacent, to repent of our ways that we just become robots, rather than people seeking to follow you? And would you make us fruitful maybe even more fruitful than we ever imagined. May we taste of it, and may we offer it. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen.